Well, let's get into the sermon here. You know, I came across a teaching a few months back that I have been really wanting to share with you guys, but it never quite fit in with our sermon series. So I was excited to share it with you today when I saw that the, the lectionary reading, which is where we get the scriptures that the kids read, um, was actually hitting this topic. Because I don't know if you noticed, but when Bella was reading, that's kind of a heavy, kind of a heavy, I, when you hear it coming out of the mouth of a child, especially, it's like, oh my goodness. So I was like, okay, we've got to address, I think, this little story that's going on there. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some Thanksgiving strategies for those of us who might be navigating family holidays where things like political topics cause some anxiety. So the story that we're looking at comes from the Gospel of Matthew. This is chapters 12, or Gospel of Mark, chapters 12 and 13. And the setting is this. So it's the week that Jesus is going to die. And he knows that his death is imminent. He can feel you know, sort of the, the current air, and he's in Jerusalem, and he's been teaching every day in the temple courtyards, you know, and he's just teaching and telling people that God is telling us to love God and our neighbors, and he's been criticizing these unjust practices that harm the vulnerable. And so it's on one of these days that he's teaching um, when he, he starts talking about things like the temple crumbling. But if we back up just a little bit, I think there's three parts to that story. And the first part goes like this. It says, as Jesus taught, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have the best seats at all of the synagogues and the place of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses. Remember that line. We'll come back to it. They devour widows' houses. And for the sake of appearance, they say really long prayers and they will receive the greater condemnation. So that's the first part of this story, Jesus' warning, beware of the scribes. The second part is there's a story about a poor widow. So right after that, Jesus goes in and he sits down opposite the treasury in the temple. So it's like if there's a box where people can place their money, he like pulls up a chair, sits right down, and he watched the crowd putting money in. And many rich people put in large sums, and then a poor widow came, and she put in two small, small copper coins, which are worth about a penny. And then he called his disciples over, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them has contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she has, all that she had to live on. And then there's the third element of the story, and this is the part that we heard Bella read this morning, and that's the announcement of the temple's impending destruction. And it's as Jesus is coming out of the temple, right after he's done this, one of his disciples is looking around and just marveling and saying, look at all of this, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings, it's amazing. And Jesus is like, yeah, do you see these? Not one stone will be left upon another, all will be thrown down. And each part of the story, I think, could be, you know, like little mini parts, like you could have a mini lesson for each one. But really, if you put them together the way they are in the text, they all fit in coherently. So first of all, we look at the scribes, right? Jesus is saying, beware of them. So who are they? Well, they're political, religious teachers, they're leaders. They carried a lot of influence. They were generally well-respected by the people. And I think it's worth remembering this isn't like Jesus the Christian criticizing a Jewish system, right? This is Jesus, a Jewish man who's critiquing within his own tradition, which was varied and nuanced. And there were a lot of people who agreed with him, including other religious teachers and Pharisees. But Jesus was a prominent leader and his voice was prominent. And so in the same way, I see a lot of validity in us Christians critiquing 
not other religious systems, but our own, right? That there's like a, a job for us to do and being able to do that from within. So I relate that these scribes Jesus describes to the Christian leaders that I know of who love to command attention and influence and use their platform to prop up unjust systems. It might also be a little bit like some of today's political leaders. And Jesus has some really harsh words for them, doesn't he? And I think he essentially has two critiques. The first is he says, okay, they focus a lot on external wealth and prestige, right? He's looking at the long robes. They want the best seats at the banquets. They think the good life's achieved, right? Through all these external signs of wealth and power. But the second critique I think is worse than the first, and it's the one I want to press into. Jesus said that they devour widows' houses. So there's some debate about what this means. But one plausible option goes like this. It's that women had very little societal power in that time. And to be a widow meant that you had even less power. And if you were a widow, and you were fortunate enough to have had a husband who had some property, once your husband died, you were not permitted to own the property. Right? The property could not be passed to you. So the scribes, these religious and political leaders, they created a system in which they became the trustees of the widow's estates because the widows weren't allowed to own anything. Right? So that way the widows could still live in their homes, but the houses weren't really theirs anymore. And so then to manage the estates of various widows, the scribes charged money. They would charge a portion or percentage of what the home was worth. And that was, you know, to help the scribes supposedly manage the property. And when I read that, I thought, you know, on one hand, I could see where that system would actually be better than having women who lost their homes, right? It's better than having the women go homeless. But Jesus, looking at it from the position of an insider, seems to believe that the system as it was set up is corrupt, right? Because, and he says it's because of what these scribes are doing with their money. He says they're having nice banquets and they're living lives of luxury and influence. So he's saying, look, these widows are being taken advantage of and their houses are literally being devoured so that these scribes can look good. Does that make sense? So what he's saying here is behold, right? Behold these scribes, these politicians, behold your leaders, behold your rulers, watch out. I think a little bit like it might be like televangelists taking advantage of the elderly or the sick, you know, telling them that if they give their money, God will bless them or heal them or whatnot. And Jesus is saying, beware. And then after this sobering warning, Jesus goes and he sits down in the temple right near the treasury drop box where people are placing their offerings, right? It would be like if Jesus came in this morning and later when we pass the offering plate around, he just kind of like walked around and just sort of watched what everybody was putting in. I think it's kind of an awkward thing to do. You know, like a hashtag my awkward savior. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Rach. <laughs> So I know most of us give online. So there's, you know, obviously there wasn't a system like that. So in the day, sorry, I, I found this upstairs this morning and I was like, Rachel, this would be perfect. You know, like they just had like a big drop box, a big treasury box in the temple. And so if you were richer, you, you had literally silver. These are all Rachel's like good silver dollars and things. And people would come in and it would, you know, you can hear it. It's loud. People pull out whole bags and they'd keep dropping it in. And then in comes this widow, and you know what she puts in because it's, you know, it's just these little tiny drops worth about a penny. And so everybody can tell what other people are putting in. 
So then Jesus, he watches this and he calls his disciples to him. And he says, I tell you, this poor, this poor widow has put in more money than everybody else who's contributing to this treasury. For they contributed out of their abundance and she out of her poverty, she put in everything that she had to live on. Now here, there are actually two radically different interpretations about what Jesus is saying here. And so I'm going to share both of them with you. So option one is that Jesus is holding up this widow as a model of sacrificial giving, right? It's a lesson in contrast that in comparison to the rich who gave out of their abundance, the widow gave out of her poverty, right? So the assumed motivation here is that she's seeking to do the best with what she has, right? It's this very pious act and that even though she doesn't have much, she's going to give sacrificially to God even to the point where it really costs her, right? And that's faith, And so then the takeaway with that interpretation is be like the widow. Give sacrificially to God even when it costs you because that's faith and God will honor that. And so the expectation is that Jesus' disciples and the people hearing the story will continue to give sacrificially to God like the widow. So if you grew up in Sunday school or if you guys have been around churches for any length of time, you've probably heard this interpretation. Any of you? Like, I know that's what I grew up hearing. That's kind of the standard interpretation for that story. So that's option one. But there's another option I came across a few months ago that really struck me um, because it's not in most commentaries. It comes from a more liberation theology tradition. And it says this. It says that instead of holding up the widow as a model of sacrificial giving, Jesus is actually offering a lament. And a lament is just an expression of grief or sorrow. That Jesus is offering a lament And so in this reading, the poor widow is being taken advantage of by an unjust system. And so Jesus isn't pointing out the widow as a model, but as a tragic figure. And the evidence for that is this. You know, Jesus had just talked about how the scribes devour widows' houses. Beware. They devour their houses for the sake of appearance and they're saying long prayers and then lo and behold, here's an example of their oppression. And this woman gives very little, the very little that she does actually have control over to a system that Jesus goes on to announce is going to be destroyed soon, right? Not one stone will be left. All is going to be thrown down. So many people are giving out of their abundance, but this poor woman, she's giving everything she has to live on to a temple and to a system that's about to collapse. And that's tragic. And the takeaway from that is very different. It's stop giving money to bad systems. And it's important to note that with this option, Jesus isn't blaming the widow for her participation. He didn't go up to her and say, you're not doing this right. He's talking to his disciples, right? So he's gathering his close followers who were men, the people with more societal power and more agency. And he's telling his own followers not to create and perpetuate bad systems. That they're to build up systems that don't take advantage of the most vulnerable in society, right? They're to lift up the downtrodden to empower the people who are most susceptible to being exploited. Right, so just for fun, let's compare how different these two options are, right? In the first option, the emphasis is on the widow's commendable sacrificial giving, right? It encourages people to do what they're told by the system, right? Give sacrificially. 
says the TV evangelist or whoever stands to benefit, maybe a pastor, depending on how unjust your system is. And in the second option, the emphasis is on the widow as a tragic figure. And it encourages people to claim their agency and to be a little more discerning about the systems that they support and about the kinds of systems that they choose to build. And Jesus is saying, disciples of mine, don't do this to people. Now, I think both interpretations are valid, and I think that both of them have something to say to us. I tend to lean toward the second interpretation personally, just in the ways that I've been sort of studying and reading Jesus in his context. But saying that it doesn't mean that we shouldn't give sacrificially. You know, giving sacrificially to systems that build community and that act justly is commendable. It's godly. Many of us here give sacrificially to create a safe church community, including me and Rachel, and I think that's a beautiful thing to do together. I really do. But I would encourage you to do what Jesus says. Beware the scribes. Watch out for religious leaders and politicians and unjust systems that take advantage of people using a veil of goodness and righteousness to hide how the few are benefiting and buying things like private airplanes off of the oppression of others. So then we come to the final part of the story, right? We started with Jesus's warning, beware the scribes, and we listened about the poor widow. And now we're walking with Jesus and we're leaving the temple. And it says that as he came out of the temple, one of Jesus's disciples said, look, teacher, what large stones, what large buildings. And Jesus looks around and says, yeah, these are all going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another, which in about 40 years, that was true when the Romans came and destroyed it. So in our tradition right here, we might say that this is Jesus is like, he's going full prophet. You know, it's almost like he's grabbed like the, the Ten Commandments and wrapped himself up and he starts talking in all of this figurative and very bold language that we heard Bella read this morning. Like people are going to be starving and things are going to be terrible. There'll be rumors of wars and wars. And all of this would have been shocking to Jesus's disciples. You know, they're just looking around saying, man, this is beautiful and amazing. And Jesus is saying, yeah, this is not going to last. And I don't think that Jesus is saying this lightly. You know, he doesn't delight in destruction. He's Jewish himself. He loves the, his people. He loves the temple. But I think he's being realistic about the natural consequences of building systems that oppress other people. Right? It's untenable. It cannot and it will not last because it is not with God. So what do we do with this? Well, I think very simply, I think Jesus is inviting us to build real authentic communities that recognize the inherent dignity of every person and that empowers every one of us to claim the agency that God has given us. Especially if you're in a place of power, like if you are a small business owner, right? That you're not benefiting unjustly off of the people who are working for you. And we might consider ourselves warned about the temporal nature of six systems. And that is not a happy thought, especially in our current state. But I think we should consider ourselves empowered to step into creative alternatives in our lives and in our economic practices. Right? That, that is something that we are trying to do here. You know, I preached at St. Clair's last week, and St. Clair's is the Episcopal church that we share a building with. And one of their members gave a testimony that really struck me. And she was talking about how she had grown up Christian, but that she hadn't attended church for many, many years in her adult life. But she was saying that, you know, like when everything went on with all these things going on in our culture, 
Um, but especially in the last two years, she's felt a really strong need to be part of something that's creatively imagining a different way of being together, you know, and of working to make safe space and living with hope and practicing forgiveness with other people who want to do that. And so that actually drove her back to a church that she felt like would help her be part of this prophetic imagining of what community can be. And I thought, man, that is just such a beautiful way to relate to church, because I think we all need spaces in our lives where we can practice this joyful hope with other people. Now, I realize that the holidays are around the corner here, and so for many of us, and this includes me, our family spaces don't always feel so safe. And for some of you, it might be because you've come out to them, and they've either told you that you're not welcome, or they give you a hard time when you see them, or maybe your partner isn't welcome when you go to be with your family. And so you're not really able to be yourself in that home space and loved as you are. Now, I don't have that particular dilemma, but um, I know some of you do, and I'd be happy to chat with you individually if you need some help strategizing. Something else that's available is, um, Jana is right here. Can you raise your hand or stand? If you need a place to go on Thanksgiving, Jana is opening up her home for anybody who would like to come and just have a meal with some other people so that you don't feel like you're alone on Thanksgiving or maybe you need a safe space to be. So if you'd like to do that, see Jana right after the service. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to do. I know for others of you, and this does include me, family get-togethers can sometimes be a little rife with religious or political tension. Can anybody say an amen? <laughs> All right, amen. So it's funny, we were talking at our staff meeting this week uh, with Caroline and Diane and Ken and me um, about how our whole society just feels like it's on edge right now, you know? And so just in everything, we all feel a little more anxious than we normally do and maybe anger. You might find yourself getting angry more often than you're used to um, being. And part of that is just our natural biological instinct. We mirror the desires and emotions of people around us. It's kind of part of our hurting instinct. So as more people are feeling anxious and angry, we are also are feeling that inside of us. And so it just continues to amp up a little bit there. And so I shared with the staff that I was thinking about preaching on this particular text. And someone pointed out um, that there must have been a similar feeling in the air when Jesus was teaching. You know, when he was sitting there in the temple, that he was also feeling this sort of large-scale um, environmental tension and that things were on edge. And while I don't think we're at the same place as Jesus was in his context, I think it can give us some insight into how um, sometimes when he taught, sometimes his answers come off as you know, really sharp and really poignant. And I would just say, it feels to me like he knows and understands this sort of beehive atmosphere, this emotional atmosphere. And I would encourage yourself to just give yourself some grace. You know, just know that we are creatures you know, we're animals with biological instincts and we're trying to navigate those things. So give yourself some extra grace um, if you find yourself feeling a little anxious or angry at home. Because anxiety and anger are not always bad, right? They, they let us know that there's something amiss. But we also know that we can't pickle in them because it just makes us miserable, especially over the long haul. So I thought I would just, just on a practical level, um, offer a couple of strategies for maybe helping us um, navigate our family time. I told Rich, I feel a little bit like a frog because I don't always feel like I do it that well. And it's something that I'm still working on, but here's a couple of things that I'm trying. 
And so first, I would say if your family is a combative type, which, you know, mine probably is a little more that way, you can just set the ground rules and just say, no talking politics at the table. I don't know if you guys saw that SNL had this skit. I think it was three years ago. And they had a Thanksgiving dinner table and people started talking politics and it started getting really heated. And then the little girl at the table, she's like maybe seven or eight, every time things would like get really tense, she'd go over to the, like a CD player or something and press it and Adele would come on. <laughs> and everybody just started singing Adele and eventually they turned into Adele. I kid you not, my family, we used this. My sisters and I were like, that's our family. And so we had Adele like on, on our uh, iTunes and when things got, we were like, it's Adele time. <laughs> Yeah, and like if your family functions that way, it actually helped lighten the mood and be like, okay, we need to chill and take a step back. So you can do the adult thing. Or you could say like, okay, Uncle Jerry, you know, if you want to have a civil conversation about politics, maybe after dinner, why don't we take a walk and chat? Like, but right now, I'd really love to hear how your hockey league is doing. Right? So redirect the conversation. And that might sound so easy, but I think sometimes just strategizing beforehand how you can redirect the conversation with anybody that you know or suspect might be difficult to talk to, like just think through a list of topics. Man, I would love to hear how your, how your daughter is just dominating in soccer this year. And just sort of, you know, go that way. Something else I'm personally trying this year is I went online and I found a bunch of questions that I thought might actually work for my family. And so I wrote them out, it's two pages long, I made copies. So if this would be helpful to you, they're on the back table. And it's just things that you could put in a bowl and have people go around and draw. I think that would actually, it's cheesy, but I think it'll work with my family. So things like, what's your favorite TV show like now? What do you like about it? I mean, Doctor Who, and there's a woman doctor, so. Um, what's your ideal vacation? Some of them are deeper, because like, I want to feel like I'm still having deep, valuable conversations with my family. And so some of these get to some of those things, like what are you most afraid of? So if that works for you, I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> Rachel's kind of laughing, like we'll see how this goes with my fam. Um, you're, oh, you're still thinking about Doctor Who. Okay, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, so if that would be helpful to you, grab that. And I would say if, if someone does say something highly offensive and you don't want to be silent, like especially if it's racist or homophobic, right? we've talked a lot about being good allies, I think you can do something as simple as just placing your hands on your head and saying, wow, I just see things so differently. And now isn't the time to talk about it. And I'm happy to talk about it with you in a different context, but I just want to register that not everybody um, sees the issue that way. And that's something I think Ken shared a few weeks back. He got that from Brian McLaren, and I thought that's so helpful because it, it, like, it registers that that's not okay with you, but also places a boundary on now isn't the time or place. I'm open to talking, but let's, you know, like, let's do something else right now. And I think that's gracious. Have a friend. You can text for support. Take walks. And I also think meditation is helpful. So I've got a mindfulness app that I use intermittently, Ken has one, you know, Ken, when he gets onto a habit, he's really good at it. And he found a, an app that's called Headspace. So if you're somebody who could like use it, it's like these two, three minute uh, meditations. Um, he's really been grooving on it. And I'm like, you could just go to the bathroom and do like a two minute meditation just to calm your body down. You know, make you feel just a little bit less on edge. Pray, refocus, and then just remember that you're beloved of God 
And more than anything, love casts out fear, right? Perfect love casts out fear. So for our meditation this morning, actually, I want to do something a little bit different. So we often take two minutes of silence or a guided meditation. I actually want us to spend about 30 seconds just sort of breathing and relaxing our bodies. And then I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, the one everybody knows, but I think is worth meditating on and just remembering. And then I'll just say a prayer for us as we go into this week. So Holy Spirit, we know you're here, but we just invite you to... um, Make your peace known to us here. I may speak in different languages, whether human or even of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm only a noisy bell or a ringing cymbal. I might have the gift of prophecy. I might understand all secrets and I might know everything there is to know. And I might have a faith so great that I can move mountains. But even with all of this, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I might give away everything I have to help others. I might even give my body as an offering to be burned, but I gain nothing by doing all of this if I don't have love. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not proud. Love is not rude. It is not selfish. And it cannot be made angry easily. Love does not remember wrongs done against it. Love is never happy when others do wrong, but it is always happy with the truth. Love never gives up on people. It never stops trusting. It never loses hope and it never quits. Love will never end. But all of those gifts, they'll come to an end, even the gift of prophecy, the gift of speaking in different kinds of languages, the gift of knowledge. These will all end because this knowledge and these prophecies we have, they're not complete. But when perfection comes, the things that are not complete will end. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I made plans like a child. When I became an adult, I stopped those childish ways. It's the same with us. Now we see God as if we're looking at a reflection in a mirror, but then in the future, we'll see God right before our eyes. Right now, I know only a part, but at that time, I will know fully, just as God has known me fully. So these three things continue, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So Jesus, as we head into this holiday week where many of us will be spending time with loved ones, I ask that you help us to love well. I ask that you would help us to find peace. I would ask that you would help us to be peacemakers. I ask that if the moment 
is right, that we, and we need to speak to injustice and call it out, Lord, that you would give us the prophetic voice to do that and the courage. I ask that you give us wisdom to make boundaries and to honor those boundaries. I ask, Lord, that you would help us not dehumanize other people, no matter how angry we are with them. I ask that over all of this, God, that you would birth hope in our hearts, hope and joy and peace and love in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.